going to be turning back to the book of Isaiah. So that whenever I get the chance to preach, I like to go to the book of Isaiah. It's becoming one of my favorites very quickly. So, it's a good book. Um, it's Alright, so we're going to be in uh, Isaiah 9, as it says up there, and uh, this is one of our, uh, you know, the church goes to this passage, and rightly so, as one of our um, Christmas uh, sermons, and so uh, we're going to just stand together and read two verses, alright, so stand with me, uh, we're going to read two verses just in Isaiah chapter 9, um, 6 and 7, all right? Let's hear God's word to us. For, uh, for to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. You guys can take a seat. So I'm sure that most of us have uh, heard or read or watched uh, the Chronicles of Narnia series, okay? And so uh, I know I have and I enjoyed uh, at least one of the books way before uh, the movies came out, but I've enjoyed the movies. In, in Chronicles of Narnia, specifically the first one, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, um, what we see going on there very quickly is that uh, there's this imaginary world call, called Narnia. And in this imaginary world, um, there is an eternal winter that is going on. There's an eternal winter, right? Uh, I know for, at least for me, that would be just a terrible thing. Uh, I don't like winter too much. I know I live in New Jersey now, but uh, I would much rather live in the Caribbean all year round. But an eternal winter, that everything's gloomy, everything's dark. Um, the people are in bondage. Uh, when, when the uh, little kids go around and meet some of these fictional characters, uh, they are just downcast, downtrodden, and there's, there's hard things that are going on. And yet, there is the hope of something in the future. And so as we uh, see the story unfold, there is what's called a prophecy, okay? Just a, a promise of days that are coming in the future that will be better. And the promise comes through this character, Aslan, who we know kind of represents Jesus in this story, in many ways, and there is a promise of better days. And similarly, in our passage this morning, things for the people of God didn't look so good in Isaiah's time. And yet, there was a prophecy, just like in the Chronicles of Narnia book, there's a prophecy of a hope of better days that will come in the future. And that's where our text finds us today in chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. And what we're going to see today as we dive into our text is that since Christ is a long-awaited child king, we should joyfully and faithfully await his full reign and rule over the new heavens and new earth. 
And so we're going to look at this idea of the child king, Jesus, and the hope of that for the people of God both back then and now, and how that relates to us today. And so first we're going to turn our attention to verse 6, where we really learn about who Christ the King will be. Who Christ the King will be. We just read it, but I'm going to read it again for us in verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And so as we begin studying this, I want to just kind of take a little bit of time, since we're not studying through the whole book, to give us a little bit of context in this book of Isaiah. So Isaiah is prophesying in a time that's very difficult for the people of God. Things aren't looking very good for God's kingdom. And in the beginning of the book, uh, we see that the king there is King Uzziah, and then shortly afterwards, Ahaz, and the people of God are not really in good standing with God. They are kind of in rebellion. They're caught up in disobeying God and his ways, and they're suffering for it. They're not worshiping God the way that he wants to be worshiped, and God's judgment is upon them. And the judgment or the discipline is coming in the form of another empire, another country, Assyria, who's coming to take over them and take over their kingdom. And so these early chapters of Isaiah go back and forth between good news and bad news. Good news and bad news, or the highs and the lows of judgment and promise. But even for the people of God in that time, there was hope. There was good news let, being laid out for them that there would be a faithful group of people that God would preserve and do mighty things through. And this hope centers around a child of all things. See, this hope, this prophecy, this promise is about a child that will come in the future. The hope of a nation is through a little child that will bring a better day or time in the future. And we as Christians today know that this hope in this child is not just a hope that will come here on this earth, but it's pointing to something in the future. It's pointing to something that we share with the people of God back then as looking forward, looking forward to Christ's return here on this earth. And this child who will be born to the people of God, it says the government shall be upon his shoulders. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I've heard this verse all throughout my time growing up. And uh, I thought, actually, at first, that this verse meant that the government would be antagonistic to Christ, which is true. We know that. We know that when Jesus was born and when he was uh, growing up, that the government was against him. But on a closer look, this is not really what's going on. Let me give you a quote here that kind of explains it better. Uh, The quote says this, He therefore shows that the Messiah will be different from the indolent kings who leave off business and cares and live at their ease. For he will be able to bear the burden. Thus he asserts the superiority and grandeur of his government. Because by his own power, Christ will obtain homage only to himself. And he will discharge his office not only on the tips of his fingers, but with his full strength. 
And so really what this means is the government was going to be his. That's what it means when it says the government will be on his shoulders. It will be Christ's kingdom. And so what Isaiah gives to the people of God as a promise and hope in these difficult times comes first in the form of a child king. And then one day through the Savior King who will come back for a second time and reign and rule over the earth as we are looking forward to. But let's go back to verse 6 because in verse 6 we learn more about who this king is going to be. And in fact, who he is for us today. And we learn this through titles. Titles are a way in which we can understand who a person is, right? I, for example, have a title as a pastor, right? And that kind of describes who I am or what my job is. Another person has a title of a machinist, right? And that describes a little bit about his job, what he does, or a president, or a teacher. But here, Isaiah gives us four names of who this Messiah will be for us, and in fact is for us in this day. And these four titles are this, and you'll see them on the screen. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Those describe who Jesus is for us today. So let's take a look at them one by one. Wonderful Counselor. Now, we know a good leader, whether it's a, a leader in a business or a leader in politics or whatever, surrounds himself with a variety of counselors who give him wisdom on certain issues, right? And so say, for example, right now, uh, after the election, president-elect, what he's doing is he's building a cabinet of advisors who will help him to understand various issues from various angles. And Lord willing, that they would help make better decisions when it comes time to be president. But note here that the king, who is Jesus, is his own counselor. He is his own counselor. Who could be God's counselor, right? Who would God go to for advice? Nobody, right? He is his own counselor. We go to him for advice and counsel, not the other way around. He's not sitting down and asking us, so Peter, what do you think about this issue over here? What do you think I should do? No, God is his own counselor. I go to him when I have trouble, right? When I'm trying to figure out a decision in my life, I go to him. Now that doesn't mean that we don't seek to have a variety of godly counselors in our lives, because in fact, that's a good thing, right? We want to surround ourselves with godly believers, godly mentors, maybe who are a little bit older than us, and who have walked the path before us, and we can kind of learn from them and glean from them. But their counsel is only as good as they stick to the wonderful counselor, right? So as they stick to the wonderful counselor's word and guidance and wisdom, that counsel is good for us. And as they don't, we should take that counsel and throw it aside and not listen to it. But we see here that Jesus is primarily the wonderful counselor for you and for me. We also see the second title is Mighty God. And this speaks to God's power and to God's might. He is the king who lacks no power, lacks no strength to do whatever he pleases, to do all his holy will. That's good news for us today, as Pastor Santa was talking about earlier. 
Whatever situation, whatever trial, whatever obstacle is in front of us, God lacks no power to work in that. God lacks no power to help a failing marriage. God lacks no power to help a person who thinks that he can't wake up the next day and go to his job because of whatever reason. He lacks no power. He has it all. But see what happened for the people of God, Israel back then, just like today, they forgot about God's power. They stopped believing in God's power. And what do they turn to? They turn to other powers, just like you and I do. Maybe it's military power. Maybe it's political power. Maybe even religious power outside of God. Or even idol power, right? The Israelites throughout their time, they turned to various idols of the nations that surrounded them, just like you and I do. It may not be Baal for the us, but it's something else. And yet they forgot about God being the mighty God. The third one is Everlasting Father. This is the third title. And that one maybe kind of scratches your head when we know this is talking about Jesus. How can Jesus be a father? Is, is Isaiah mixing up the Trinity here? Is he saying that Jesus is sometimes the Father and sometimes the Son? Well, no, we know that's not right. We know that's heresy. And so we don't, we don't want to say that's what Isaiah is talking about here. But what is he saying when he says that Jesus is like an everlasting Father? One commentator, he explains it this way. He says it refers to the loving paternal concern he has for those who have been committed to his charge. And so in other words, Jesus, in his role as our king and as our God, he cares for us like a father. He cares for us like a father does his child. He sacrifices for us. He leads us. He disciplines us when we need it. And so he is our everlasting father in a way. And the last title is this, that he is the prince of peace. The prince of peace. And this last title, I think, is beautiful. For me, it reminds me of the very first Christmas when the angels were proclaiming to these average shepherds in the field, saying this, that glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. See, Jesus' kingdom will be a kingdom of peace. It is a kingdom of peace even now. And in a world where we see violence and strife in our streets, in our neighborhoods, in our newspapers, as we turn on the television, in a world where we are bombarded with violence, Jesus is saying, my kingdom will be a kingdom of peace. Of peace. And we talk about that a lot at Christmas times, but I think that we need to... To, to really take this title and who this is showing, uh, showing us about Jesus to, to heart because we need our aching hearts to be reminded this is not the way it's supposed to be. When we look out there and see those things, that's not the way it's supposed to be. There is a king whose kingdom is marked by and will forever know true and lasting peace. And that is Jesus' kingdom. We learn that here through this title. So not only do we see that Christ, who Christ the King is, excuse me, but we also see what Christ's kingdom is going to be like, or what Christ will do. 
Verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his king, kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord will do this. See, government is not inherently bad as some people think, right? Sometimes I'm prone to think that, that, you know what, I'm just going to give up on the whole government thing. But government is not inherently bad. Good government is good. Bad government is bad. But as we see here in verse 7, Jesus is going to have a government. He's going to have a government, a perfect government, like none that we've ever seen before here on this earth, or that anyone on earth will ever see, that will rest upon his shoulders or his leadership. And really when we think about it, on whose other shoulders could a perfect government rest? Nobody, right? The only shoulders in which can rest a perfect government is Jesus. History has given us plenty of examples, past and present, and will in the future of leaders who could not bear the weight and the responsibility of a righteous and good government. And yet we know that Jesus' government will be righteous and good. So what will this kingdom be like? Well, it's the, Isaiah tells us that it will be a never-ending and always-expanding kingdom. Never-ending, always-expanding. That's different from what we see today. We see kingdoms rising and falling. Whether it be a, a political kingdom, or the kingdom of somebody's business, or the kingdom of someone's family or career, or whatever it would be. These things rise and fall just like the sun does each and every day. But God here says that Jesus' kingdom will be never-ending and always growing. There's a long quote here by John Calvin that I have to read it because it was so good as I was studying. So please try to follow along. It's really good. It says this. Though the kingdom of Christ is in such a condition that it appears as if it were about to perish at every moment, yet God not only protects and defends it, but also extends its boundaries far and wide and then preserves and carries it forward in uninterrupted progression to eternity. We ought firmly to believe this, that the frequency of those shocks by which the church is shaken may not weaken our faith. When we learn that amidst the mad outcry and violent attacks of the enemies, the kingdom of Christ stands firm through the invincible power of God, so that though the world should oppose it and resist it, it will remain for all ages. We must not judge of its stability from the present appearance of things, but from the promise, which assures us of its continuance and constant increase. A beautiful quote. Talking about the kingdom of God, we can't look at the present circumstances of this world and judge it, judge the kingdom of God by it. That's not the way that we do it. We look what? We look at the promise. We look at the hope. Just like Isaiah was trying to encourage the people of God back then. The same promise encourages us today. Don't keep your eyes on that newspaper. Don't keep your eyes on that thing going on in the news. Keep your eyes on the promise. 
So by means of a few applications for us, maybe when we feel hurt and we think that the wrong president was elected and our country is surely headed for doom, we are to fear not and know that Christ is on his throne. When local politicians and business leaders promise jobs and resources and things for you to, to help your life, but yet they don't come through, they pad their own pockets, fear not. Christ is on his throne. Maybe when your boss or the people you work with abuse their authority for your harm, we are again to fear not because Christ is on his throne. His government will increase and his peace will be no end. Another thing I want us to look at, the second part of this, which is his government will be characterized by justice and righteousness. That's what Jesus' government is going to look like. It will be one that is right and good and peaceful. And as we think about this, I even want to ask the question, can you guys think of an earthly kingdom, past or present, that could be characterized as a government of peace, a government of justice, a government of righteousness? Now, I'm not talking about it perfectly because well, we know that that can't happen outside of Jesus. But even as I was trying to think about this in earthly examples, I have a hard time thinking about it. One that we can really point back to and say, that was a government of peace, of righteousness, of justice. One of the things that was interesting to me as I read through the first three, uh, few chapters of Isaiah was really to see the contrast between what Isaiah's audience was hearing in this promise of something in the future and then what they were seeing in their current government. Right? Remember back then, the government was uh, religious in a, in, a, in a way. Right? There was no separation of church and state. There was a theocracy in which God was their king. But still, there was a big disconnect. And I want to read you just a few verses that talks about what God's kingdom was like at this time. From chapter 1. Verse 4 says this, They were a sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, Children who deal corruptly, they have forsaken the Lord. Verse 21 says this, How the faithful city has become a whore. She who is full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Verse 23, Your princes are rebels, companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. The kingdom of God was in a bad place. They were hearing this promise of something that would be just and right and true, and yet their experience of their government was bad. And of them themselves, they were a part of this government. And you've got to say then, thank God, that though this may happen among the people of God, now on this side of glory, that when Christ returns, his government will be characterized by perfect, perfect righteousness, perfect peace, perfect justice. And I know that you and I long for that. We long for that type of government. And, and even today, we know 
that as God's government is being ushered in, even now, that we are to deal with those sinful inconsistencies in our own heart. And so when we see injustice, when we see unrighteousness, when we see a lack of peace or strife, we need to deal with that by God's grace. It's not okay to just let those things slide. That's why we're about that here as a church. We love God's heart for righteousness. We love God's heart for justice and mercy and of peace because that's what God's kingdom is characterized by, both now and then perfectly in the future. But still now, as we fight for it, we know it will be perfect. I don't know about you guys, but this seems to be quite a task, right? This seems to be quite a task and almost, in one sense, unbelievable. Could there really be a perfect kingdom of righteousness, peace, and joy, and a king like this king described here in Isaiah. The good thing is our passage ends with a promise, a guarantee. It says this in the end of verse 7, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so with Jesus, we know that this is a done deal. This is a promise that we can take to the bank, that we can believe in, that we can hold on to in those hard times. In those times when we look at this world and we see the total opposite, and we really say, can this be? And Jesus is saying to us this morning through this passage, yes, of course it can be. It's already happening through my church through my kingdom, through people just like you and just like me. God is building his church, building his kingdom. And we can rest assured of that. And as we come to a close this morning, I want to encourage us with that. I want to encourage us that this is not just a promise that is to be held out in the future. To say, you know what, now I just got to suffer through it, keep my head down, and uh, that, that will come in the future. No, that future promise has present implications. Meaning, it has, it has present realities in our life. That, Like I said earlier, God is building His church in and through people like you and me. And that you and I are a part of this kingdom. That He is our King right now. He is that perfect King. He is sitting at the seat at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And He is beginning His rule and expanding His kingdom through you and me. And though we are waiting, like in Isaiah's day, for that time in the future, we have a part to play now. We have a part to play in this work. We have work to do. And this work is given to us by this great King of the kingdom. And my prayer for all of us is that we would await this king. We would await this perfect kingdom joyfully and faithfully, keeping our eyes to the horizon as it were, keeping our hand on the plow, waiting for Jesus to come back and to fully do what he promised right here. And yet even now that we would be faithful, even now that we would have hope. That's what Christmas is about. Christmas is about promise. Christmas is about the future, when God will come back in the flesh, Jesus Christ, once again, and make all things new. And yet he's doing that through you and me, even now.
And so hopefully you're encouraged just like me as we read this passage and study it, as you guys think upon it this week, that there is a child who was born. Now we look back on Christmas Day, right? We look back on him being born and we celebrate what that means for this world. It is good news indeed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, your word is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. God, I thank you that uh, we don't, you don't just leave us in this broken world to ourselves and to our own sin and destruction. God, but you have saved us. And you have sent a Savior, a King, King Jesus, who is perfect, who is a perfect King, who is perfectly righteous, perfectly good, perfectly merciful, and of peace. God, we need that encouragement today. And so we pray, God, by your grace and for your glory, encourage our hearts to go forth and to live faithfully, keeping our eyes on the horizon, as it were, waiting for your return. God, we long for that day. And as we wait, we take hold of this promise from Isaiah 9. We thank you for it, Lord. We pray all this by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.